Breaking the Glass, episode 10. If you look at the chances that are given, I've seen more chances given to minorities than minorities that were even exposed to, ready to accept it or willing to be a pilot. So what do you, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. So I told my boss, you know, I've had commanders that told me I was I, both squadrons I've ever been in. I've always been the only black pilot. I've had commanders that are like, we need to diversify. And I go, OK, if you walk in a room with 100 black kids and I'm a black pilot and I'm here to talk to them and deliver a message about you can be a, a pilot. You tell me how many numbers, h- how many kids I need to touch and be successful and accomplish getting them from this room with 100 people all the way through to being a pilot five or six years from now. Yeah. He goes, I'd be happy if five or six of them got through. And then what happens if out of 100 kids, none of them want to be a pilot? Are you saying that you don't want to force something that's not there? Exactly. It's a career field that you don't want to force somebody to be there. If They need to have the passion, drive, and desire to be a pilot. If somebody says we need diversity, what's your, I guess, remedy that you're thinking, if there is one? I think the the remedy, one of them, and there's probably several, this is my own personal opinion based yeah, off experience. Right. I think the remedy, one, is exposure. Like I always turn around and talk about. It's exposure. You can never accomplish anything if you don't know it exists. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 10. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up, and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. This week, I spoke to Phil Dillingham. Phil grew up in a solid middle-class family in Sacramento, California. In his background, his father served in the Air Force, as well as having a cousin who flew fighters. Eventually, Phil was recruited by the Air Force Academy to play basketball. While at the academy, he did struggle academically, but he made it through and graduated. Upon graduation, he got into pilot training, where he excelled with the flying piece, but struggled academically. And his wife gave him some tips on how he could study efficiently. And once he figured that out, he was in business. He successfully finished pilot training and flew C-130s and later C-17s for the Air Force. Now, after his first five years flying, his wife was having a successful business career, so he made the decision and sacrificed to do what's called palace chase. And instead of moving from job to job in the Air Force, he continued his job and his career in the Air Force in the reserves. He'd be able to stay in one place near Sacramento, California, and work in the reserves, as well as go get a job flying for Continental Airlines, which later became United. During his time at United, in addition to flying long-haul flights, which are a minimum of nine hours long, he was tapped to be part of a select team to give advanced training to all 13,000 pilots at United Airlines. Now, his work schedule is such that he'll do one of these long trips and be gone for three days, and then he'll be off work for seven days. On those days off, he's pursued some entrepreneurial interests. His first company was a franchise which sold automotive accessories. Later on, he got the opportunity to partner with a local businessman who was looking to commercialize or make a business out of up-and-coming new technologies. Phil helps evaluate these technologies, create a business plan, and then work to build a team so he can invest in it Shark Tank style and then ultimately sell the business for a profit. 
He does all of this while being a great husband and the father of two daughters. Phil also does volunteer work and motivational speaking to youth and groups of all ages. He encourages people to listen and be disciplined. You have to be a good listener in order to pick up on opportunities that are out there and be exposed to the various options that exist for them. And then you have to have the discipline to make a plan and carry that plan out. Do all of that while being humble enough and bold enough to reach out for help whenever you need it and you'll succeed. Phil has an easygoing intensity and he's very straightforward. You're going to love listening to him and getting to know him. Please welcome my guest, Phil Dillingham. My guest today is Phil Dillingham. Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having a conversation, man. It's uh, it's good to talk to you, and um, I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you. Me too, man. I've been a long time in the making. I'm glad you uh, reached out. I'm more so glad that we connected, man. It's, uh, it's like lifelong since we were, what, 18, 19? So this is great. Exactly, exactly. And so why don't we start with a little bit of a lightning round background and you tell a little bit about how you grew up and uh, how life was for you. Yeah, so I'm originally from Sacramento, California, uh, older sister, older brother, uh, big influence of mine, my uh, mom and dad. Dad uh, did two uh, tours in Korea, uh, in Korean War, and retired, uh, came back, got out, started doing contracting for the uh, U.S. Air Force, and we were in Stockton, California when I was born, got transferred up to Sacramento. I was uh, pretty much raised, I call that uh, my home. My mom was high school uh, educator for many years one of two black teachers in a very small town, predominantly white, and everybody wanted to be in her class. So she was very known, and that's kind of what pushed me up to an educational level that I had to stand up to, kind of set the standard. Uh, my brother went to a Merch Marine Academy here in Northern California, so that also elevated the bar. Right. And that, and that caused me to uh, get in touch with one of my cousins that flew fighters, and I didn't know anything about the military nor the Air Force Academy. And somehow, by accident, uh, a couple of the recruiters came to one of my games one night and did a little bit of research, talked to my parents and without them telling me between dinner one night and uh, kind of watching a movie, they whispered to me, I need to go to the Air Force Academy. And I got a late start. It caused me to miss the application process. They got me into the prep school and that got me a nomination to the Air Force Academy. So born and raised here in Sacramento, uh, in California. And my mom and dad pretty much were in the I always jokingly tell folks the north side of the tracks, they were in a predominantly well-off neighborhood. I played basketball and grew up with the rougher crowd, uh, which kind of made it difficult, but very much opened my eyes and uh, made me well-rounded when to hang out with the the wrong crowd, but step away when they got ready to get in trouble and hang out with the good crowd when the opportunity knocked to uh, to move forward. So We were classmates at the Air Force Academy, so I knew you starting when I managed the basketball team, and I always remember you could just jump out the gym, man. That was my claim to fame. Um, you know, I, I have to, it's funny you mentioned that. I think I'm closer to a lot of the guys that were managers, support groups, and things like that, that actually put the team and helped the team run with the logistics and operational side of the house more so than the players themselves. Uh, and that's that's a true testament to what I always preach, uh, having a, a very strong foundation when it comes to uh, networking. So yeah. I, I, it's been a, man, it's been years. I um I, I know the experience at the academy is tough enough as it is. How how was it for you, not only you know having to be a student, but also to be a D one athlete? I mean, there's a lot of travel. People may not recognize this. They think like the lifestyle of an athlete is all glitz and glamour. But I remember some of those trips, man. To some 
seedy motels when you you know you're on the the JV squad and trying to balance that all that travel with still trying to make good grades in school as well as the military piece of it as well. How did you able to how were you able to balance all that out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I didn't. I I can honestly say I didn't. I for the most part uh, struggled. I barely. I barely kept my head above water. Uh, I think at one point my junior year, including injuries and all that, I think I was carrying 23 and a half units just wow. to keep my head above water and all of that. So it's not easy. What I learned the hard way was, again, having a network and communicating. When you're struggling, uh, the biggest part of being a man <laughs> is speaking up and saying, hey, I need help. And I did. And I still hit rock bottom, meaning that at my worst day, I didn't think it'd get any worse, and it still did. And even when I asked for help, some folks just told me, "Hey, you know what? Just go to bed and wake up in the morning, and it's a new day." And that's the only thing that got me through. Wow. Uh, guys, like, guys like you, man, that you know, when I was struggling and I wanted to complain, that wouldn't listen or just patted me on the back and say, "Hey, man, you're up. Let's go. Let's get after it," and kept right. me moving. So that foundation and that network was everything, and that's what got me through. So, what made you after the academy? Um, want to be a pilot was it your cousin who flew or did you have an innate interest in in flying or what was made you go that direction i, I did you know with my dad working at an air force base as, as a civilian uh his his hangar the hangar he used to work in was right at the end of the runway and here in sacramento they had a maintenance depot where they did a lot of engine runs on uh, way back in the day to date myself the f-111 and it was notoriously known as one of the loudest airplanes in the inventory. So a couple of times I'd go out with my mom and we'd bring him lunch or something like that. And he said, hey, you want to go out to the edge of the building? And uh, we would listen to the F-111s like the afterburner and they'd do, do a test run and they'd take off and turn right and go up to Reno, turn around and come back in like 20 minutes. And I remember my parents saying, hey, you know, your cousin flies those. And a couple of times he came to the house, he brought a jet in, went out and looked at it. I didn't really think anything of it. And I was that typical uh, young, uh, very athletic minority kid that was known my whole identity was basketball. And that got me all the way through high school up until my parents said, hey, that's plan B. Plan A needs to be academics and you need to figure that out. So I made that my goal very late in high school and I was lucky enough to be exposed to something. And once I got exposed to it, just like I preach, you know, once you get exposed, that's everything. The next thing, which is second, but almost as important is figuring out a plan. Right. And it sounds funny, but my mom and dad basically told me the only plan I had <laughs> was going to the Air Force Academy. And right. that's where my my cousin graduated. And that's why I always talk about we'll probably get into perspectives. I didn't know of any other way. They told me no matter how bad you do, no matter how bad you want, no period the Air Force Academy and that's it. And that's one of the reasons why I never quit. I kind of just struggled my way and pushed my way through it. You know, I, uh, I remember coming home, like, you know, you go home during your vacation times and I was home driving with my dad somewhere. And I was like, dad, man, you know, all my friends are talking about this. Like what happened to all that money you had saved up for us to go to college? He's like, what money are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like you, you lucky you got to a school that's all paid for. So yeah. yeah. And then the conversation went on the whole some other thing. I was like, oh, all right, there it is. And it's so funny because, you know, I think and this is what's so ironic when folks see me, number one, I'm six foot four and I probably go two ten, two fifteen now and I'm still in shape. Right. It's funny because people look at me when I pull up and go in a restaurant, I'm driving around with the kids and the wife and they always whisper and nudge each other and go, hey, and I always joking, look at our daughters and go, hey, they think I'm a retired athlete, like a 
retired. Everybody thinks I've retired as a pro football player. I played right. pro football somewhere, <laughs> but nobody knows that. And then I have to go back when I do my motivational speaking engagements, which I have one uh, in a couple hours tonight. I always go back and tell them, like, look, real, just realize this. Out of my high school team, one guy went to the NBA, played six, seven seasons, had a multi-million dollar contract. Two other guys had a chance. Things just didn't work out. But I played at that level in high school, but I barely got out of high school with maybe a 2.2. Hmm. And I wasn't there that much. I think I spent more time chucking and jiving, trying to get into school, hang out with the wrong crowd and be cool because I was that typical athlete. But at the same time, I got into the Air Force Academy because yeah. of basketball. So I ironically, I used my identity as he's just that 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 very athletic jock. He is the typical jock in high school, probably isn't that smart. And then all of a sudden I disappear and folks are like, you went to where? Yeah, yeah I went to the Air Force Academy. Right. So. I always tell folks that, right? And the ironic thing is because I graduated from high school with a 2.2, my mom and dad saved up literally twice as much money for me to go to college as my brother. And that was the ongoing joke when I was in high school because they were like, <laughs> you're probably not going to get out in four or five years. It's probably right. going to take you several years after the four, the normal to get out. So I knew. And when I got to the academy, then I figured it out that, wait a minute, I'm getting a paycheck. Right. And my mom and dad were like, yeah, but you're good. Like, don't leave. We still got that money and it's being saved up. Right. But that's it. Like, you need to get there. So for us, it wasn't financial. But again, the perspective for me changed because that wasn't a worry. My worry was this is my only option, which come to find out it wasn't right. I, I could have gone and my mom and dad would have helped me get a scholarship somewhere for I play in Division One basketball. But at the time, I didn't want that. I just wanted to be a normal guy and they could have funded my college education. But that perspective is different if you really think about it, because a kids nowadays, there's a lot of kids that are very smart. They're way smarter than than where I was at that age. But financially, they don't have the means to go. And that's unfortunate. I um I wonder uh, there's a couple of things there. One of them would be if you so you tell the story to kids about you struggling through school. Some people will then say, well, I can struggle, too, you know, so I'm just going to struggle my way and be like Phil and still come out ahead. If you were to wind back to that time during high school as an athlete, would you have done anything differently? Or like if there was Phil Jr. coming along, I know you have daughters, but if, if you had or if you tell them or if you tell your son who's maybe athletically gift, gifted and has a chance for a scholarship, would you advise them to maybe have done things differently given your experience? I would. You know, I tell folks right now uh, with technology, I jokingly gave a motivational speech a couple months ago. And I, I had to tell a kid, the parents were there, it's about 200 people. And I think I caught a lot of folks off guard because that question came up and I told them, I said, okay, so let me switch that question around and say for our daughters right now, our oldest daughter sees things like my, my older brother, like she can look at something and within two or three minutes, figure it out. Our youngest daughter, I think she is on the, in the process of seeing it, but just not as fast. But the minute that she doesn't get it quickly, like in athletics, she gets frustrated. And that was me. Yeah. So I tell her. Hey, you do realize the answer is right in front of you. And I finally gotten her over the hump to where when she gets frustrated, she smiles, she sits back and instead of struggling through it, she takes a deep breath and she looks at it and she'll either try and figure out in a very small fashion, meaning that she won't get frustrated. And if she starts getting to the point where she can't get it, she'll push back, raise her hand and find a teacher and say, hey, look, this is how far I got and try mm -hmm. and explain it in, in a story. 
And that right there is helping her get through. Yeah. Now, later on, after I got through the academy, I struggled my first two or three months in pilot training. I could fly the airplane like no nobody else. You know, when it came to hands after playing basketball, flying the airplane was a joke. So but you, the just real load, quick, right after the academy, you went basically directly into pilot training? I did. I did. Okay. And that's a testament to I struggled through the academy so much that up until about four or five years ago, I still had a lot of hatred for that place mm. because of the academic struggle that I went through. I always felt like nobody should struggle in their life like that to get through, period. The, the caveat is I didn't know what I didn't know. Well, but so, now you do, though. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering with regard to like your high school days, you were gifted athletically. It sounds like the lesson you learned not so much would you change anything, but how would you take the wisdom you learned to help the next person? And it sounds like for your daughter, it's like take them in. Two things I like that I heard is one is to, to stay calm and not get frustrated to solve the issue. out. The other one, which I think is even bigger and better, that's a, one that's grown for me over time, is to just ask for help. I think a lot yes. of times, especially gifted or talented people who are natural that way, or I don't know, people maybe who don't know better for whatever reason, are scared to just ask for help. And it's right there available for them. And it's typical minority. And I think it's a, that dimension, it's twofold, right? Because as an athlete, I got all the attention by going out. And it's, I was that kid. I didn't start. But when I came off the bench, everybody in the crowd started getting their cameras ready. And they started sitting on the edge of the bleachers like, it's something, something's about to go down. We're going to get a highlight <laughs> reel. And I knew that. That was my motivation. Right. And I wasn't a finesse player. I would take off like a rocket and try and get put my head by the rim and dunk the ball and, right. and just see everybody down like, no, he didn't. Right. But I knew I had that type of power. If I could go back and change it or if I could tell our kids or any other, like a lot, I speak to a lot of the athletes, I tell them, if you have that power in that arena, then how is it that you can't go in there and be man enough or be human enough or be that strong person on the court or in your sports environment to turn around and say, hey, I don't get this. I need help. Right. It's not that you're going to be labeled. And we have too many labels now in society, which is a whole different conversation. But it's not the fact that somebody's going to perceive you as stupid or you don't know it. Somebody's going to look at you and say, hey, this kid tried. Let me help him. Because I tell folks all the time, less than I think the statistic years ago, less than two percent of military aviators are minorities are black. Right. But if you think about it, there's more white people that helped me get to where I'm at. And they were asking me, where are the other minorities? We need to diversify more so than the minorities were screaming. We need to diversify. So that's what I would push. And a lot of times when I go and do motivational speaking engagements, I always highlight the athletes because they don't get that dynamic. I tell yeah. them, look, if you have all the power to capture attention, then everybody is looking at you. Eyes are on you. Don't say, hey, I don't know this. You need to be specific and say, hey, look, I tried this problem and there's a way to formulate a question when you don't get something. You don't pop up and say, hey, I don't know this. You pop in and say, I tried this, use this equation. I read this book, tried to read this article. I'm not understanding this right. I, I, can you help me out? And that's where people will step in. Now, if you're the typical athlete that I find right now that is lazier than I don't know what when it comes to academics because right. you haven't been exposed to how to be a good student, you've only been taught how to be a good athlete. That's another problem. And it's again, it, that dimension, it goes several different ways. But if I could go back and change stuff or even talk to like when I talk to student athletes now, including our kids, our daughters, I tell them that the worst thing you can do is be quiet. The worst thing you can do. And if you have a gift athletically, especially to get you to college on an athletic scholarship, to be in high school, 
Every high school team at, at that level, they have tutors available. The coaches right. will get you extra help. Instead of going to practice, you need to be there in the academic arena getting that extra help for 30, 40 minutes and to be practice, eligible. Practice later and on practice. And, and fill it out. Yeah. Well, you sounds like you said you took that mentality into pilot training. So you were struggling a little bit academically in pilot training, although you could fly the plane. How, how, what was that part like? Uh, that was more frustrating. Because I lost the, I actually still had the attention. They wanted me to go try out and play for the Air Force basketball team. But I had finally gotten through the academy. And at that point, I just wanted to be, believe it or not, a normal person. And I have a business partner that I grew up with. He played seven seasons in the NFL. He played for the Bengals. Great guy. He's like a brother to me. And very much so, just lately, we're the same age in our early 40s. You know, he said it too, where it's just good to be a normal guy. Right. To go out and not be... And I think I hit that as a nobody celebrity <laughs> playing for the Air Force Academy. And I really wasn't a, a top athlete. It's just the fact that I just wanted to go out and fly airplanes and be a normal person. And yeah. when I got to pilot training, when we got in the jet, and they said, hey, fly over here, go do this, go do that. I was spot on. But the minute they asked me a question about the systems in the jet, that's where I struggled. Mm. And I, I, my wife sat down one day and she goes, you've been studying for four hours it's midnight and you got to be in brief tomorrow at 5 a.m. What'd you study? Typical, just like at the academy. I could not tell her, bro, one thing I remember from studying after four hours. Yeah, I, I couldn't. So that's where it came down to. She goes, you need to organize how you study. She took about an hour the next day and showed me, look at the chapter, look at the system and paint a picture and outline it. Just go from big to small. You don't need to read every little paragraph and all of that. And it took me about a week to figure that out, redo how I studied. Then it got to the point where my instructor, instructor pilots would ask me a question in the first 10 seconds. They were like, OK, OK, don't forget. Let's go on to the next. Right. Because I, I started understanding it. If I would have known that and how to study in high school, it would have been a different ball game. Well, it, t- it sounds like something, you know, we've talked about before and you mentioned uh, before the interview, which is that there there's a foundational piece that people lack, that kids lack that it's not that they aren't smart enough. It's just they don't have the skills, the basic fundamental skills of how to study to be able to get to where they need to be. Yes. And that conversation we had was phenomenal because one of the three things that I always start off with when I do my speaking engagements is listening and discipline. Those are the first two things I always tell folks. Any successful person that keeps them from failing is listening and discipline. If you have the power to listen, you're exposing yourself to anything and everything that's out there. That's number one. But you got to listen. Then after that, do you have the discipline to develop a plan and execute it? Can you stick with that plan? And the plan, like I tell a lot of guys, I do a lot of help with military pilots getting out of the military and transition into the commercial airlines like United and whatnot. You know, if it says add a cup of sugar, add a cup of sugar. Don't add a cup of sugar, a little pinch here and there and overflow. It just means add a cup of sugar. Right. But the typical mentality is I got to do a little bit extra. I got to show them and prove. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. There's nothing to do. It has nothing to do with that. All you need to do. I call it imitate, (laughs) then innovate. Yeah, exactly. So those two things I tell folks, all you need to do is listen and have the discipline. I've never seen that not work for any kid, any adult, anybody that's trying to get ahead or accomplish something. If you can listen, just listen to what somebody is telling you and then have the discipline to go out and do it. So you that, had you had you had the ability to listen and, and use discipline with what your wife taught you. And that took you through pilot training. 
Uh, you ended up from there. Did you end up in the C-130 right out of pilot training? Yeah, so I got C-130s right out of pilot training, and uh, I was pretty happy. Um, I wanted to go fighters, but after talking to my cousin and being around some fighter pilots, I didn't know if that mentality or that lifestyle was going to be suitable for me, the family, and all of that. Ended up yeah. doing 130s. My wife graduated from college shortly after her, shortly before I finished pilot training. I chose Little Rock. She had family in Tennessee. A lot of her family f- founded Lane College, historically black college there in Tennessee. Wow. And I had family in Oklahoma. So we decided the middle ground would be Little Rock, Arkansas. And about a year into that assignment, 9-11 kicked off. Mm. She had just started with a pharmaceutical sales company based out of France as a vaccine specialist. I told her, because we don't have any kids, I'm going to fly my behind off. You go back and forth to the home office in Swiftwater, Pennsylvania, build your career. And that's where we kind of took off. She got a two-step promotion from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, one of two uh, representatives for the area, back to San Francisco. She was going to represent pretty much all of Northern California, all the way down to SoCal, Reno, and all the way down to Hawaii. And we moved back. I Palace Chase, which I got off active duty and separated to the reserves. And we so that's started what Palace Chase is. You, you, you made it. If you slow that down, that's you said, I'm going to well, explain what Palace Chase is. So Palace Chase basically means you forego the remaining part of your active duty commitment and you can transition it to the Guard or Reserve. And a lot of military personnel don't know that. And it's rare that you can do it. But I wrote a letter, requested it because my wife is getting a promotion and moving back. Uh, it's funny that I, she was making at the time, she was making a lot more than the, the wing commander on base. <laughs> wow. So I told a couple of my, my commanders, some other folks, there's no way I'm going to go home and tell her, Hey, you got to forego your career, you know, especially when you're making more than the, the highest ranking person on base. Right. So I opted out and they took the remaining part of my active duty commitment, which I had four years and they doubled it and said, go find a guard or reserve squadron. And you can serve as a part-time reservist, traditional reservist or guardsman for eight years. And that's what I did. Okay. And then you coupled that with uh, a career in commercial airlines as well. Yeah. So when I left the 130, I got hired on by a unit out here in uh, Fairfield, California, Travis Air Force Base, about 30, 40 minutes outside of Sacramento, which we moved back to our hometown and started a family. And I started flying the C-17. And about five months after that, I got hired at Continental Airlines and flew for them for about six or seven years until they merged with United. Okay. Okay. And so you, now you're managing both flying for the airlines as well as flying for the guard as well. Yes, for the reserves. And I also have a side business where I do business ventures and different company activities on my own with two or three other partners at a time, too. So let's talk about the, your career in the airlines, because there's some folks out there who, whether they're currently in the military uh, flying right now or thinking about going that way, they want to think about what, what could my life be like after I'm flying, uh, for the, for the military. And part of that does include flying for the commercial airlines. Um, what was it like getting that job and, and what is the experience of being a commercial pilot like? So getting a job with the airlines, uh, starting a career, uh, for military folks should be easy, but a lot of folks make it hard because they don't translate as far as flying a military aircraft, compared to transition and flying a commercial aircraft. First off, I'd say what we do in the military, uh, a lot more stressful, a lot more involved, and a ton a t- ton of work compared to flying for the airlines. Uh, flying for the military, you know, you have combat operations. I did a lot of that stuff, uh, medical evacuation, where it's life or death. Every, you know, every other time you go up, you're getting shot at and all of that. 
compared to, you know, Sunday or Monday coming up, I fly to London Heathrow out of LA. So we show up, everything's done for you. Uh, there's not a lot of stress involved, if any. So there are two different things. And it's kind of like driving an Indianapolis race car and going from that to driving a, a school bus doing 35 miles an hour in a neighborhood, dropping <laughs> kids off. Wow. But, be, but because you've been at that level flying, you know, from a scale from one to 10, you've been flying a 10 to bring it all the way back to a two. Uh, a lot of military guys and gals that are pilots can't, especially fighter pilots. Sometimes it's harder because of to scale back and go from a 10 all the way back to a two. You mean it's in terms hard. of like intensity on the job or like the pace that they live when they, when you say scaling back, what's hard about it for them? So for example, you take the average fighter pilot, right? If you, uh, if you go and capture an F-22 pilot and I, I didn't fly fighters, I flew heavies. Uh, but let's just take, for example, an F-22 pilot, you know, every time that pilot goes, goes up, it's them against another fighter jet, depending on the mission. Somebody's trying to kill them, and they're trying to kill that person. And they always have to have that mentality of being the best of the best of the best. There are no mistakes, and they have to be perfect literally all the time. That's what they do. Well, then you take that same pilot, and you put him in a, a Boeing 787, which I fly, and it's the most sophisticated airliner on the planet. And it's years in front of where you would think a jet needs to be. And it does everything for you. In fact, it has an algorithm set into the software to where it times out if you don't tell the jet what to do. The mm -hmm. jet is telling you what it wants to do. And when you hit a button, you're not telling the jet what you're doing. You're basically okaying the jet like, hey, I see you. Go ahead and go to the next algorithm. Mm -hmm. So to, to tell somebody that's been flying fighters, hey, every time you go up, you'll brief for two weeks to go fly a one-hour sortie. And at that one hour, you might only be fighting the enemy for four to five seconds, and the fight's only going to be two seconds at, you know, Mach 1 or in a 9 or 10G turn to kill something. But now we're sitting up there, and when the airplane has an engine failure, an emergency, the jet with the algorithms and computers is going to handle the emergency, and then it's going to tell you what the aftermath is. Right. Wow. So, the, 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 yeah, the input is dependent upon the historical problems that the pilots have messed up. So every time a pilot makes a mistake – with the boost pump failure, well, all of that is recorded on a black box. And when the engineers redo it and build another airplane, and when that boost pump fails, instead of telling the pilot that it's failed and the pilot reaching up and having the have introducing error because they might shut off the wrong boost pump, now the jet, before it tells the pilot that the boost pump is failing, the jet secures the boost pump and makes sure that everything is aligned. And then it times out and delays, <laughs> and then it tells the pilots, hey, this is what I just did. Just, or, just so you or, know, there was a problem. So you know. I fixed it. <laughs> yeah. And half the time, the jet is smart enough to tell four different centers, our operation center in Chicago. Oh, my gosh. Uh, our maintenance center or wherever the jet's going. So a lot of times it has the ability to order the part. And when we land in Narita, Tokyo, folks will come out and plug into the software. And we're like, hey, well, what's going on? They're like, oh, yeah, you know, this part just failed or this, this, and that. It already ordered its own parts are on their way. Oh and we don't gosh. do anything. We don't even sign off. We just get out of our seat, unsure up our seatbelt, shut the engines off, and we go to hotel. Wow. So technology so, so you're saying is that like, sophisticated. If I could, if I could say, you're saying like a, a fighter pilot may be used to all the time action, intensity, stimulus, making decisions, and all that gets taken away from them once they get into a commercial plane. And it sometimes I found I've done a lot of interview preps for military pilots. Heavy pilots, and when I say heavy, I mean cargo, uh, C-17, C-5, C-130s, KC-135. They look big like planes. big planes that look like airliners. Yeah, that's one, that's one group. And then the other group would be fighter pilots, uh, including helicopter pilots and bombers. 
a lot of times the military pilots, when you tell them, hey, your job just went from a, a 10 to a two, yeah. you don't do a lot. There's not a lot of decisions. It's hard for them to make that transition, number one. Number two, the other hard part is in the military, just like we were always taught in the Air Force Academy. I remember the day where we sat in the meetings uh, and the, the end briefs when we were you know, brand new cadets and they were like, you guys are the best of the best of the best. And it's a perception thing that they're painting. It's also a perception thing that they want you to realize, hey, you're the strongest, the best, the brightest of everything. You made it. Well, when you get the military pilot training, they don't tell you that, but they kind of make you feel like that in a nonchalant way, right? Like, hey, you're the pilot. You're in control of all these lives and everything. So you're the man. Well, once you get that ingrained and in your head, you feel like I always have to impress people. I always have to do the best. Well, that's the fallacy about the airlines. The airlines, they're like, no, 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 no. Hey, you might be flying a jet that eliminates decision making because the jet is smart enough to tell and talk to everybody around it right. and take care of its own problem. So how do you tell a military pilot instead of being the man now? All you have to do is show up and basically sit there and let the jet tell you what it's getting ready to do and watch it. So and how, what do they have you when you see it? How do you either help them make that transition or do you often see people ultimately struggle so much they don't make it through that transition? Uh, it happens both ways. The vast majority of folks do okay. And it's a lot of uh, deprogramming and reprogramming. There are some pilots that don't make it and they don't make it, I think, because of their own person. Uh, they under they start to slowly understand what the airlines, that lifestyle is like, and they don't like it. They're like, I don't like that type of flying, which is fine, you know, and it's good to know that before you go in and accept the job and then end up getting the job after all that hard work and then opting out. Uh, but it takes a lot of coaching, you know, where when I ask them typical airline interviews, they'll say, hey, tell me about a time where you experienced a bad emergency, like an engine failure or a passenger dying or something like that. Right. And tip and typically you'll have a military pilot that'll try and act like they were at the International Space Station. They lost their oxygen <laughs> like a movie and they were floating off in outer space and they had to make it work. Right. And I, I always tell folks, hey, you're not there to impress them. Because what you'll paint a picture in their eyes, the hiring department is, hey, we got a problem, child. This guy is Superman, and we don't want that. We just want somebody that can interact with everybody else, with the rest right. of the pilots. Because keep in mind, not all commercial airline pilots have military backgrounds. So <laughs> you might be sitting in an airplane working with somebody that's barely flown an airplane that's carried 70 people from coast to coast compared to a fighter pilot that has multiple kills and has probably done stuff on that doesn't even exist to the, to the president. So yeah. how do you get those two people to uh, interact and operate? And basically it's changing each person's perspective to understand what, what's the, the job entails. How have, have you managed people in those positions or are you mainly in the position of advising them once they get there? Mostly advising. Uh, I've worked in our hiring department for my squadron, and I've actually conducted interview boards, and I had that experience, which is great. For the company, uh, it's just kind of helping out when I meet up with folks or a network, and somebody will tell me, hey, this guy that you flew with in pilot training, after 20 years in the military, he's coming over to fly for United or FedEx. Then I'll get the phone call, send them to my website, which lays out a huge foundation on how it works and all of that. And after about a week, contact them on the phone and then we sit back and go through the actual protocol and process and I just help them interview and practice. Now you mentioned this website a couple of times. What what gave you the idea talk a little bit more about what it is and what gave you the idea to start a business 
prepping people for interviews like this? So when I got hired, my the typical airline interview lasts, uh, if you're doing really good and answering all the questions in the right format, typically lasts about 45 minutes. If they're looking for some other things from you just to be thorough, it'll go maybe an hour. If you totally bomb it, it's like an hour and 10 and you know that you didn't get it. My interview lasted about 15 minutes. It was wow. quick and it was short. And I actually had a chance to go in and talk to the three guys that sat on my panel and ask them, like, hey, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And they were like, if every interview that we could conduct went like yours, we would literally be in fifth heaven. We would hire everybody. So I got a lot of feedback. I actually went back and helped the guy, talk to the guys that, that interview prepped me. And I just started getting all of these folks that just kept asking me all these questions. And finally, somebody hit me up and said, hey, why don't you put out a website or some type of paper that explains your experiences and what the airlines are looking for, because I actually know a lot of folks in various hiring departments, including ours. So I did that and I had a website for my personal business. So I just took uh, a different index, just a different topic and put it over on the side. So I send everybody to my my business website and kind of go, hey, forget everything I'm doing in my personal business, but look at the military transition guide over on the far right and you'll see it. And I get hits every day and I get phone calls and emails, folks that I, I've never talked to. They're, hey, I just was pushed to your website, linked up and connected. And I love it. It's helped me out. And I'm on my way to a FedEx interview or a United inter- interview. Are you running it as a business or just helping people out who need it? Just helping people out that, that need it or inquiring about how to get hired. It must be a heck of a networking tool, though. It is. It, it is. And that's one of the things that even in business, uh, it's funny you say network because my business group is Network Venture Group. And that's the name of the website is www.networkventuregroup.com. And everything I I feel like everything I've ever done in life always comes down to how big and how strong is your network. You know, it takes a village to raise a kid. And I don't think that'll ever die. It'll just get better. And moving forward, you know, I think my network now, I'm blessed that my network now is is it's fabulous. I know a lot of important people that when things go down and I know I can pick up the, the phone and make a phone call or send an email or or connect with somebody and say, hey, you know, I, I need this done, or I, I have this going on, can you help me? And it takes me all the way back to just like high school, you know, instead of sitting there struggling and being quiet about it, that's the struggle is being quiet. The easy part is speaking up and raising your hand. If you do nothing but raise your hand and say, hey, I don't get this, I need help. Help will come, especially nowadays. I don't care what environment you're in, help will come. So if somebody wants to be an airline pilot, then aside from obviously the training they had in the Air Force, or whatever military flying uh, for a living, how can they become a pilot if that's what they want to do? So there's two different ways. Civilian, it's expensive, but you could. the best thing I always advocate is go down to your local airport, small airport where they have private single-engine airplanes. And basically there's companies and there's uh, little, uh, there's folks that are around that own their own small airplanes. I fly with a lot of airline captains and just airline pilots that have small airplanes that are sitting out at a small airport in your local community. You could walk over, knock on a door and walk into the buildings or in the hangars and say, Hey, you know, my kid wants to fly nine times out of 10. They're going to walk you out and say, Hey, let me put you in my small airplane. Cause I was getting ready to go for a ride for 30, 40 minutes. Why don't you put your kid in there, strap you guys in and I'll go take you. Yeah. And that's where the exposure comes. And then after that, you learn how to fly. Uh, you can go and take flying lessons and whatnot. And then that progresses into single engine and then you can get a multi-engine, you can get your commercial, your instrument, all your license. And then that pushes you to, okay, where do I want to go from there? And the next level is a charter pilot. And a lot of times that leads to a commercial pilot for the military. 
Real quick before you go on, if I'm getting a license that way, what kind of expense would it be from I've never flown before to being like a charter pilot getting ready to go into the commercial business? It varies, but the last figures that I ran across uh, just from doing some of the uh, hiring conventions and whatnot, anywhere from sixty to seventy thousand to sometimes it can top a hundred thousand, depending on how far you're trying to go. Wow. Okay. So it you is gotta, expensive. You got to be committed. That's maybe why a lot of people go the military way. Yeah. Yeah. So the military is different. You know, you you go in and you have to have a four year college degree, and once you get out, you can either go to an institution, uh, service academy, like we did, or you can go to a four year university. Uh, like UCLA, and they might have an ROTC de- department or program where you can go in and sign up for and join. And you get out, you take your commission. Once you're commissioned as a second lieutenant, you go and find a unit or you tell your recruiter or wherever uh, the, uh, the Air Force Personnel Center says, if you can test into it and score high enough, then you can be pushed over to a slot or to a group of folks that's interested in going to pilot training. And it's very selective. And once they select you, they go through a, a selection board. If you get selected, then they'll send you to pilot training. And then basically that's the step you made. You had pilot training, got into the uh, reserves, right? Was it the reserves or the guard? Uh, I went to the reserves after so active got, duty. You got in the reserves, and then now you're flying for continental uh, as w- commercially as well as flying in the reserves. So you came in as a pilot. Where did you move from just being a pilot or – Actually, before you go there, what what kind of lifestyle is it like to be a pilot for an airline like Continental? Uh, Well, Continental merged with United, so now we're United. But, uh, you know, it it depends. I fly wide body international, so I do super long haul. Uh, Our shortest flight might be nine hours all the way to our longest flight. Uh, I fly out of L.A. is, uh, I think, now Singapore, where it's like almost 16 hours nonstop. So I don't don't fly that much. Our trips usually last anywhere from uh, three, maybe four days on average, and then you're off. We can only fly a certain amount of time. So I basically max out all my hours in around 10 or 11 days a month. So I'm on three days, and I'm probably off for about a week, week and a half. So I don't fly that much. I average about 21 to 22, sometimes 23 days off a month. And I, I hate to fly on the weekends because of our daughters who are 11 and 8. I do everything I can to be super dead and make all their events, sporting events on the weekend. Do you um, do you enjoy that pace of life or would you like or and for you specifically? But then is it for someone who wants a faster pace more to do? Is that the right thing for them or should they think about something different as far as flying is concerned? Well, there's there's different ways of doing it. Uh, like a stark contrast would be Southwest. Southwest, you know, instead of doing one long 16-hour leg, uh, a lot of their pilots, they might do four or five short legs in a day and never leave the continental U.S. Right. So their, they, their stuff is a lot faster, a lot quicker, and a lot more frequent to where once we get airborne, we're pretty lazy. We sit up in the cockpit and the jet fl- literally flies itself all the way down to an auto land where the jet will land itself. Mm. So if you're looking for time off, I would recommend going to a major airline and going to the wide body uh, lifestyle. If you really, really want to do a lot of work and, you know, you don't want to be bored, then I would say go to a company like Southwest to where, you know, you're never going to fly wide body. You're going to be stuck on a narrow body airplane your whole career, which has its benefits. And they're an awesome company. Uh, I just like the wide body. I like flying in a big, comfortable airplane. Uh, And on that 16 hour flight, you're probably, worst case, you're going to get about a seven-hour break where you can go in the bunk. We have life flat bunks up top where it's an actual bed. You can go up there and sleep for seven or eight hours on end. Yeah. Okay. And 
I've seen a lot of pictures of the meals you get on uh, LinkedIn. It seems like you eat pretty good on those flights too. I do, man. That's why I've got to stay on, <laughs> got to stay in this gym and keep it moving. Cause wide body pilots, your first year, you typically gain 10 to 15 pounds because right. they serve you first class meals and they are on point. Wide body pilots get wide bodies themselves. That's why they call us wide body pilots, bro. <laughs> so at United, did you how, how about progressing? Did you do any other experiences or have any larger responsibilities while you're there, or are you, are you trying to stay pilot status? Uh, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, other than the military, that's a good thing about being in the commercial. Once you show up and go fly and go, once you get back, you're done. They don't call you. They don't bother you. That's it. So on my 23 days off a month. Nobody calls me. Company doesn't bother me. They don't call me. They don't mess with me. I am off. They're not going to call me in the middle of the night and say, you need to go to take a jet to Iraq and rescue somebody. So that part is good. But I actually flew with uh, some very high management pilots that after building some rapport and interacting and flying with them in a cockpit, they identified me and said, you know, you're a young guy with a, a hell of a resume. You need to do some different stuff. And I told them by nature, I'm lazy. And they were like, you know what, just let us look into some stuff. And I looked at that as number one opportunity and number two, that that would have give me the ability to expand my network. So I ended up applying based off of a management guy that was a mentor to me, said, put my name in the hat. And I got selected to teach a class. Uh, It was 30, about 32 or 33 pilots of the 13,000 and the 32 or 33 of us. I can't remember the number. Sorry, but we got tasked in an eight month period to teach class to all 13,000 pilots at the company. And it was absolute phenomenal time because I took a lot of my struggle and upbringing and how I learn and how I see things. And that's how I, I kind of ran my class as a facilitator. Okay. And so that was a good experience. And then you still have all this extra time off. What type of things, I know you started a whole separate business in your time off. Why don't you talk about what that's about? So I always had a, you know, a, I owned a company with my brother. We bought it to a franchise where it was an automotive accessory store. Uh, we had two of them here in the Sacramento area. And, uh, and this one of them is did back all right. whenever you were in about 05, something like that? Yeah. As soon as I separated off active duty and got hired at the company and started changing my schedule to have all this time off, our uh, oldest daughter, she was just, uh, just, just arrived in the world. And it allowed me to stay at home, be on call. I could go out and service the shops as an owner. I owned it without managing and it was nice. It was a franchise buy-in. The stores were open for, I want to say, three or four years. And, and what business. did the stores do? So we did automotive accessories. So basically, anything and everything that can be done to a car, a truck, uh, motorcycles, from tinting the windows, tire rims, tricking the car out, doing whatever. And that's that That was always an interest of mine, a side hobby and whatnot. So we bought into the franchise. And one store did okay. The other one didn't. And at the end of the day, it just became a headache with the family and our second kid on the way. I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's just go dark. So we kind of got rid of the stores, but I still kept that business sense of, you know, I'm not a business major, but I kind of wanted to own my own business, especially with all the time I had off. Right. So I, I networked back and forth. My uh, brother, who is a senior associate for a multimillion dollar building firm out here on the West Coast, just, he just he I just call him. He has the big brain. And, you know, we I hate folks say we look like twins mm-hmm. because I always I always figured there has to be a good looking one and there has to be a smart one. So obviously <laughs> when people say we look alike, you know, I, I, I guess I'm the dumb one, but oh. I used his big brain and I always throw numbers and projects at him. I go out and network secure some business ventures, turn around and throw it to him and he'll come up with a nice business plan or a good idea. And then we'll sit down and try and knock it out. And then my third business partner is uh, like a brother to me. You know, we've grown up together and always stayed in contact He's the guy that retired from the NFL. So his network 
is vast. He knows everybody and anybody from Jupiter all the way to Mars. So between the three of us, I feel, I always felt like, you know what, we have the ability to make a run at a lot of different things. And we've been together for about two or three years. That's what the website shows. And I actually signed on to an agreement with a company that actually does research technology and builds companies uh, for sale and profit around the technology. So I'm one of uh, probably about four or five dozen partners that we work directly for a guy that owns his own company. And we basically just go in and do research on technologies or inventions that have been put out there, but almost like Shark Tank, they can't get to the next level. So we yeah. go in, go through a vetting process. We choose them and see if we can get them to the next level. Once we do, we would build a company around it to sell and not own. So let's, so let's slow that, that down. Do. Let's slow it down a little bit because that's that's a lot in a couple of sentences that you just said kind of nonchalant like that. Um, you're, so in the past couple of years, you took a break from doing other businesses that you did back in 05, 07. And, and back in the past couple of years, you, your brother and the retired NFL player get together and another company has technologies that come to them kind of like the shark tank. They're the shark tank input point. Yes. And all those businesses that come to them, they look to you amongst 40, 50 other uh, people or companies to say, hey, could you guys make this business into a business and then develop it into something successful? Is that is that right? Yeah, well, my, my business group, I operate with the 40 or 50 other partners. I operate completely separate. Right. But within my, my business group with my brother and my other business partner, we're just giving it a go on our own where we're out in the local community. Or if I hear of a business venture as separate than the technology uh, stuff that I do research on to vet, that is completely separate. So I actually was able and fortunate enough to lo- link horns with my other two business partners and then go out. And we, we, we struggled a couple of times. I, I would probably say out of the four or five ventures that we've looked at, two or three have done okay, two have tanked, but it just kind of leveled out the playing field where we didn't gain right. or lose. But it actually helped us build and get, get our reputation, our name out there, especially for me to get out there and network. So are you like, it's, it sounds like, an angel investment type of company? Is that a good classification or how, how would you, what, how would you classify it? Uh, for my business group, it's probably on a smaller level where we've invested uh, a little bit of money, uh, financial interest with a commitment. And then at the end of the day, we got back what we made and then some, and then some other stuff we didn't get back what we made on the other side. I negotiated into a contract that I can't really talk about the terms, but it's a seven year term. And I have, access to a database over 100,000 inventions, technologies, and all of that as a partner. And I go in and I spend the time on my own, own leisure. It might be an hour a day, two hours a day, or whatever at my own pace. And I can look at all of the different database entries and all of that, which are actually technologies. Once I find one that I think we can build a company around, I submit it and it goes up a hierarchy, which is a vetting process in the firm. And it takes about a week and a half, two weeks for them to come back and say, hey, we think this will work or no, we're going to deny it and write up it, write it up as a negative. And then it's back to the drawing board with me. I do that separate on the side from my actual venture group with my brother and my other buddy. Right. OK. And so there's sounds like there's two lanes. There's the side that you just you guys investigate businesses on your own and, and take advantage of whatever opportunities come. Then there's this database that you invest in. You research and invest in technologies if they're viable and vetted properly. Yes. And these, so uh, that's interesting. I think a lot of folks who want to be entrepreneurs, 
a way to do that is either starting your own business or doing like what you're doing is finding other businesses and make them viable and successful. I have friends too who um, who do that kind of thing. And I wonder when you look at a business, what are some things that you may not be able to talk about the specific businesses or the deal, but when you're looking at something like that, what makes you look at how do you identify whether that company is going to be successful, whether there's a marketplace for it, and whether you want to take it further to the vetting process? What are some key things that you look for? So I have a business model that I use, and it's kind of in, it's, it's heavily influenced by the guy that owns the firm and the company. And the vetting process is secretive. It's way above my, my pay grade. But for me, I look at it as, you know, supply and demand and profit. And keep in mind, I don't have a business degree. So a lot of this is just through the school of hard knocks. But is it first off, like we owned our automotive accessory shops, is there a need? And then if there's a need, is it a luxury buy or is it a necessity? You know, anytime you're in business, if you can sell a necessity where somebody has to have it, you're probably going to be a lot better off than a luxury item where somebody is standing in, in line at a grocery store and they look over and see some, you know, some cherry flavored chapstick. And they're like, hey, I guess I'll buy that for 32 cents. You know, if there's an, a necessity or a need for it and you can match that up, that's what I typically look for. Then after that, I look for okay, what's the actual product and what's the catch? What is it going to do? What is it going to improve? I think on the market, if you can improve something and measure it uh, with a certain dynamic that's tangible with anywhere from a 50 to 60% gain minimum, meaning that you're going to make it 50 to 60% better and tangibly be able to show that and prove it, that's step two. And then step three would be, okay, if you're building a business around it, what is your profit margin? What is it going to take to build a business around it and sustain it and then market it, produce it, get it out there and sell it to the public and close that whole loop. That's the part that we do, but we don't actually own. We get and generate the company for sale and then we walk away. Right. And because a okay. lot of times I sat there and the guy that I that I partnered up with that owns a firm, he goes, we try and stay away from building a company and then owning it for seven or eight years. It took us 200 grand to build it. And it, the company's probably worth $200 million. And literally within four or five months, something happens, the company tanks, and now we're all the way back to the company's not even worth $2,000. Right. So, I, yeah, I didn't want to be a part of that. And when he said it, I went, yeah, I am new school. I don't want to be that guy that walks in a room and says, hey, I own a business. I want to be that guy in a room that financially is stable, and I want to be able to afford anything that my family and I want to do. Right. So I'm not looking to be a multi-gazillionaire, billionaire, whatever. If it happens, great. But my goal is to see where do I need to be to be financially comfortable, one, and then what does that take? And when I was talking to him, he was saying that there's more business owners that have failed than business owners that have succeeded. Oh yeah. And that encompasses a lot of folks. There's folks that were worth, you know, zero. They were actually in debt and they started a business five years later. Their their business and their net worth is, you know, $500 million. Right. Five years later, they're back in debt. And they've lost everything. Right. And that's where... You don't want to ride that roller coaster. You don't want the operational risk. You want to build the I business, don't. sell it, and let someone else operate it. And keep in mind, too, and this is one of the things that I always tell the, the younger kids, you know, a lot of the guys that have been successful in this business uh, group that I partnered up with, you know, once they sold the company for 130 something million dollars, you know, they wrote it into the contract. As long as the company is operating, they still sit on the board of directors and advise right. as a as a founder. So they're getting 30, 40, 70, 80 thousand dollars a month to sit on a phone and do a one hour conference call sometimes with the business that they started and sold off. So if you take somebody and you say, hey, what would it be like to get 50, 60 thousand dollars a month just as long as that company you started and sold? 
that's pretty good income. Yeah, and I I uh, I don't want people to get the idea that it's just a check that comes. You're providing value. You don't get the opportunity to sell it for that much, and it doesn't operate that well if it's not a viable idea. So yeah, you're getting a nice check, which is good, and it's leveraged because you don't have a lot of work to put in it. But they're paying for what's in between your ears. That hard knock yes. that you gained and learned to be able to tell them the the right things to keep them on the right path, even though they have to yes. operate it and they take on the risk, which is smart in itself um as well so so i i like that mix because you you know you get to see some different businesses examine them launch them see them succeed but you don't have to take on the risk how hard do you look at the team or is there a team there whenever you're building the business up to be sold so that's the next level that i haven't identified with i've probably submitted uh 20 maybe 30 ideas and so far a lot of them have been shot down and the bad thing was when I first got shot down, it was an ego, you know, it's kind of like a, a shot to my ego. Then as I started sitting back thinking, perceptions, everything, like I always tell our kids, then I started thinking, wait a minute, I'm getting better at looking and identifying them as time goes on. So yeah. instead of the, you know, the first five or six of 10 that I submitted getting shot down re- like with a nuclear bomb, then it got to the point where somebody was like, hey, OK, look at the, these two right here. They would work, but not in this country. Right. But the sell, the sales tax, exportation tax, and everything operationally speaking to help run that company, it would be a nil. It would be a loss. We would be working for nothing. Even though the product would be successful and generate $8 million a year, it's probably going to take $7.5 million just to go foreign and always fly in and out and be checking up on it and set it up because it's off-site from the U.S. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, that's why that one technology or invention didn't make it with the mom and pop that did it and invented it out of their backyard. So I learned, and that's the experience that I'm like, that's invaluable. You're the thing to me that's kind of amazing is that you're doing that. Although you, like you said, you didn't have a, a, a long string of business background. You didn't have a business degree, but it sounds like you networked your way into this opportunity and then leverage other partners on your team to make it successful. Once the opportunity came, I had to, I absolutely had to. And I always had that saying. My brother used to used to joke around over pizza and beer. And I'm like, no, I want to do less to make more. And my brother would always laugh and look at me and go, how about being smarter to make more? Exposure is so important. Sometimes exposure is almost equally as important as perception, you know, and perception to me is everything. I had a life changing experience with our oldest years ago. I was walking through a bookstore and I looked down and I've never read a book from cover to cover, believe it or not. I never have. I hate reading. Even if it's with about airplanes, cars, my hobby, whatever, I just don't like reading. Now, if you put it on a documentary and I can see it on TV, I'm more visual. But I look down and I see this book that talks about uh, love is letting go of fear. Hmm. And I it caught my attention like, man, that's crazy. I picked the book up. It's 140 pages. And our oldest daughter sitting there like, you're going to buy that. And I wanted to give her the same answer. I always gave everybody else. I, I don't read. I couldn't say that to our to our oldest daughter right. and be a bad influence. So because of that, I had to bite the bullet. And I'm like, yeah, daddy will buy it. I bought the book, bro. I Believe it or not, it was 140 pages. I read the book overnight, and that was the first time I read it. And I highlighted stuff, wrote notes in it. And basically the take from it was human. You know, my back, my, be, my um, major at the Air Force Academy was behavioral science which is phenomenal too, because I started looking into why do people behave a certain way? And that was the underlying theme that I, I thought about. And the book talks about is our human nature. We're inquisitive, but our fear 
it's kind of like Darwinism, right? Our yeah. fear keeps it protects us. So until you actually get exposed to something, your initial reaction to it is to fear it. Fear turns into hate. Hate turns into, hey, that's not my way. But once you get to fight, figure out something and like it and experience it, then that's why the book is called Love is Letting Go of Fear. Once you figure out and get over the fear, you are now in a way, in many ways, more susceptible. You are opening yourself up for the opportunity to like it. So I read the book and then that's explained a lot of stuff. It explained why in high school, I never wanted to be the straight A student because I looked at all the kids we would rough up and beat up and bully and call nerds. <laughs> right. But then I look at it. I want our daughters to be straight A students. Right. I tell our daughters, I hope you're a nerd. But I, I looked at how it was perceived to be a nerd. And that was my fear. Right. So, of course, like human nature, I hated it. And you then that turned into you. it influenced me. And I tell a lot of kids now there's no way humanly possible. It's not humanly possible that the latest future or Fetty Wap album can come out. And before it even hits the mainstream, you know every song, every verse, every beat, but you can't <laughs> get in there and you can't even pass a calculus test. Right. It makes no sense to me, right? Especially when kids are walking around with a smartphone. How are you going right. to be done with a smartphone? <laughs> so a lot of the speaking engagements that I do, I laugh at and I always throw perceptions, everything. And I start off by talking about listening and discipline. And I make the whole class, whoever I'm talking to, my audience, memorize that. I said, at the end of the day, I want you to memorize two things, listening and discipline. And then that should influence your perspective. There's no way all of these kids can walk around and know every hot artist, R&B, rap, this, that, TV show. And they know, like, tech gear. They know the latest apps that I've never even heard of. Yeah. Like, my nephews, man, they, uh, they, they live in North Carolina, but I put them on my family for the iPhone apps. And so yeah. they got to they got to get my approval before they get an app and the apps they are saying like, I'm like, this is kind of a cool app. How did you even hear about this thing existing? So right? they, they can do research. They have knowledge. They just like you said, they're not knowing how to leverage it properly or apply that brain power in other areas. So if I could go back and change things like in high school, it would be perception and motivation. You know, how do you motivate these kids nowadays, especially with the older generation every year? I'm part of a uh, 100 black men of America and all of that. And we do stuff. I look at these older guys that don't get the generational gap. And they're always talking about where they came from with the Martin Luther Kings and all of the black historical influential civic leaders and all of that. And I'm like, hey, look, that time, that was a long time ago. We can't forget it. But at the same time, we can't be stuck on, hey, listening to the older regime. We need to figure out the new regime and understand, hey, the perception is different. There's more people nowadays, in my opinion, that want to help you if you ask for it and if you present yourself in a fashion that looks like you want to be helped. I'm sure that's a controversial point of view whenever you bring it up that way. It is. And it, it what, is. How but, do you balance in learning the wisdom from what the, those generations taught us with the, 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 also the good point of saying, let's modernize it and think about what's happening today as well? Well, that's the key right there is modernizing it because that thought if you go in in my opinion if you go in uh kind of politely politically correctly speaking politely and say hey you know i don't think you're going to get the same reaction i don't want to go in there and bully them over because that's the same line of thinking that happened years ago with the civil rights movement not just black but female too but if you go in and you're like hey you know you walk in the room and say hey i demand an opportunity to be educated that's different than walking in and saying hey i'm here for the class and leaving it at that. Yeah, I'm sitting down in your class. I don't need to tell you I'm here to be educated. I'm sitting down. I enrolled. So let's get going. But I look at a lot of folks that walk in 
and they spend more time, energy and effort being mad and forceful to get ahead. And it turns people off that we're never going to turn them down. Hmm. But it changes the person's perspective of like, look, I never saw race, gender. I just I'm holding a class for 30 people. You just walked in my class belligerently saying, hey, I'm African-American or I'm Latina, I'm Hispanic and you're going to teach me. Then it turns the teacher off. The teacher was like, I was never against you. I don't care what nationality or gender you are. I just want to open up the class and have you learn. Is that how you've dealt with or, or how have you dealt with any kind of discrimination or, or racism or bias um, in, in any environment? How, how have you experienced it? And maybe perhaps how have you dealt with it? You know, I've experienced it in, in flying in the fact of it, it's, a, I would almost say twofold. You know, I've had more black people walk up to me in an airport when I'm flying, taking off for London, Heathrow, Singapore, uh, Melbourne, wherever. I've had more black people walk up and go, it's about time I see a black pilot. Yeah. And I sometimes I cringe and I go, hey, what do you think our daughters see every day? Daddy goes to work hmm. and they go, uh, 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 I go, yeah. I said, from their perception, their, their perspective. Yeah. Daddy's daddy. But that's what he does. He's a pilot. But if your perception is. You tell your kids, hey, look, that's rare. I see a black pilot over there. Then the kid, first thing they see is that's rare. Second thing they internalize is, hey, there's a black pilot, but that's rare. Hmm. Why is that rare? So I well, have isn't that it, isn't it though? Me, uh, it depends. Because in, the, it depends. in the, um, the statistics we talked about with the Air Force, it's minimal and rare uh, in terms of pilots that I've seen. I think they're like at a 1,200 fighter pilots there are like 19 of them who are black in the air force right now true so if you look at statistics and numbers it is rare right it is the minority yeah. but if you look at chances if you look at the chances that are given i've seen more chances given to minorities than minorities that were even exposed to ready to accept it or willing to be a pilot well, so what do, you, what do you mean by that i don't understand so I told my boss, you know, I've had commanders that told me I was I, both squadrons I've ever been in. I've always been the only black pilot. I've had commanders that are like, we need to diversify. And I just looked at him and frowned. I'm like, why is that? Why do I always hear folks, non-minorities say we need to diversify to the minority? And they're like, well, because we do. And I go, OK, if you walk in a room with 100 black kids and I'm a black pilot and I'm here to talk to them and deliver a message about you can be a, a pilot. What's your number? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, you tell me how many numbers, how many kids I need to touch and be successful and accomplish getting them from this room with 100 people all the way through to being a pilot five or six years from now. Yeah. He goes, I'd be happy if five or six of them got through. I said, OK, what happens if somebody else says, hey, my number is two. Who do I go with? And then what happens if out of 100 kids, none of them want to be a pilot? Let's just face it. None of them want to be a pilot. Are you saying that? You don't want to force something that's not there. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Exactly. It's a career field that you don't want to force somebody to be there. If they need to have the passion, drive and desire to be a pilot. If somebody says we need diversity, your thing is your response is we don't need to force people into that. We don't. Are you saying that efforts towards that are in vain or what? What should we do? If you're the only black pilot, are you saying that it shouldn't be different or are you saying that um that it'll happen on its own i mean what what do you what what's your i guess remedy that you're thinking if there is one 
I think the the remedy, one of them, and there's probably several, this is my own personal opinion based yeah, of experience. Right. I think the remedy, one, is exposure. Like I, I always turn around and talk about. It's exposure. You can never accomplish anything if you don't know it exists. And believe it or not, I had an experience. I was flying into Iraq, deep down into Iraq one night, and I was a pilot. I hadn't didn't have my name tag or anything on because we were flying sanitized, blacked out. I had 60 passengers. The last four passengers were the only black guys on the airplane. Yeah. So I, I walk. I was doing paperwork. I walked up and stood behind them because the only way to get on the airplane was one door. So when I walked up, they turned around and looked at me in a flight suit, and they laughed and said, hey, that's cool. They let one of us on the airplane. Hmm. And I kind of looked at them and, well, what do you mean by that? They're like, it's kind of cool that they let a brother up on the airplane. And they didn't realize I was the pilot in charge. And I went sarcastically, well, in order to get the airplane from point A to point B, they have to let me on the airplane. I thought that they would get that. And they looked and they were like, oh, man, you, you talking trash, trying to show off. I'm like, uh, you guys ever been up to the cockpit? And one of the guys nudged the other one and said, hey, man, bro, don't get yourself in trouble trying to show off. It's cool, man. We're, we're family. And I went, no, well, how about two of you guys ride in the cockpit for the takeoff and the other two of you guys will swap out mid-flight. You can uh, sit up there for the landing. And they looked at me and said, oh, man, we ain't trying to get you in trouble. I said, it's okay, man. We got up there. I escorted them to the cockpit, and my crew was sitting there on headset, ready to go, calling me, sir, ready to go. Oh, yeah. And they were flabbergasted. I took off, flew them into Iraq, and I got off the airplane when we landed, went up and shook their hands. And these guys wanted to take pictures, and one of them nudged me and said, do you realize we come from a small town in nowhere Alabama in the country? We never thought about there being a black pilot. And these are black guys in the military. Right. And I just shook my head. Now, you can blame every other outside source inside. You can blame everybody else. But if you look at the root cause of that, it's just exposure. Yeah. And it's not a problem. It's just exposed. Like the guy told me, he said, I've seen doctors on, on the emergency room on TV. I've seen black lawyers. I've seen it. He said, I've never seen a black pilot. So in his view, he didn't even know a black pilot exists. So how could he ever accomplish that? Yeah. And so it sounds like, let me ask it this way then. Do you think it's a problem that there's a lack of diversity, say, in the pilot career field? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the solution. Because I think you. Go ahead. I think you limit. I think you limit your environment by not having diversity. I think you limit in every single way. You may not agree or disagree with where or why or how they got there, but at least you get exposed. And once you're exposed, you understand the why. Understanding why is more important than agreeing or disagreeing. So then if it now back to the, you know, the commander says we need diversity in here, your issue is let's not try to force it. If, if I'm maybe even putting words in your mouth, your issue is let's go back to the very beginning and expose people to it. And the pro and, and then the people who are there, once you get there, just now, you know what the opportunity is, maximize it while you're there. And then down the stream over time, it'll solve that problem will be solved. Yes. And I think you have a better, a higher probability of finding more, more accomplishment through that than basically going in there. And I I don't want to say you're forcing people, but your expectations end up being, hey, we need to go find five kids and turn them into pilots. And what you're really doing is I think you're kind of forcing them instead of saying, and it's a two way street, because by showing them, hey, you can be a pilot. Are you interested? And this is what it takes. You don't just show them like I show them everything. Here's what it's like to fly. Here's my daily schedule. 
Here's my lifestyle, but here's how I got there. And how I got there is just as important because the two way street is what I do is one way. The second way is this is how it, this is the process. Right. And then they understand, well, I may not want to be a pilot, right? but I know I got, here's the common, the commonality is I want to be a doctor. I got to go to school. Yeah. I want to be a lawyer. Oh, I got to go to school. Like my brother. Yeah. I want to be a electrical and mechanical engineer. Oh, I got to go to school at a certain point. The only way they know is I got to go to school. And that's where perspectives come in because our daughters understand literally high school is like junior high. It's Mm -hmm. like elementary school. It's like college. They're all one. Once you get that one high school, you're really not done. They're expecting like, oh, no, we're done once we get out of college. It sounds like you almost float above any issues of discrimination or things like that. Like it's not a big impact in what you in what you deal with at all. You know what? Honestly, it really isn't. Sometimes I've said that uh, if I had to sum up my struggle, I didn't even realize that it was a struggle. I didn't realize so-and-so didn't want me to succeed in being a pilot because I was black. <laughs> like, I kid you not. You know, have you ever had somebody flip you off yeah. or insult you and you just sit there and look at them like, I don't even understand what you're trying to do. Yeah. And then it frustrates them, right? The other day in traffic, guy cut me off and I just stared at him and he looked at me, honked the horn and flipped me off and he ran the stop sign. And the more he flipped me off, I just kept a straight face, kept looking at him. Yeah. And he almost blew a gasket getting mad because <laughs> I didn't acknowledge him flipping me off. Yeah. I think in a way that's my subtle demeanor of maybe I was just too stupid to realize there were people discriminating against me. Right. I don't remember or didn't know. I yeah. just kept it moving. Yeah. You know what? I like I this is a common thing I'll say on the show is that I, I feel like I faced discrimination maybe two or three times five at the most of my life. And, um, and, and this is the first time I've heard like a thing that is a reason why it may have been like, maybe, maybe that thing that person did, maybe that was discrimination. And I just didn't, I didn't perceive it that way. Which goes back to perception. And, And even if somebody is discriminating, what do you do? Like, are they preventing you from moving forward? They may be though, Phil, I guess that's the thing is like, in some cases, you know, like, for example, when I talked to uh, the, the first interview I did, um, Bryce Fisher mentioned that, you know, an executive of his company, they were saying, we're, we're going to stop recruiting at HBCUs. And and he's like, well, we don't we're not interested in diversity then. And the, and the, this, the executive's like, well, we don't want to lower our standards. And and and, and it, so it is by definition preventing and this is Merrill Lynch. It's not some small boutique firm. And I'm sure there are people that want to work at a company like that at HBCUs. So it is in some ways preventing even the entry opportunity for some folks to get into that environment that other folks wouldn't otherwise have. True. But I, I think and we've seen that happen, too, at multiple companies where they're not outlandishly saying or openly saying we want to lower our standards by hiring pilots from this group. What we've done is some of the guys and gals like Bryce Fisher, hey, I'm here, even though I didn't go to a HBC, historically black college, but let me tell you this, look at what I am doing and the conversation we're having and where I'm at now. Yeah, You need to at least figure out how to get that person from whatever level you think they're on to here where I'm sitting having this conversation with you. Right. And I think when you turn it around and change somebody's perspective to answer that question, they do one of two things. You want it to be the CEO because they're one figurehead at the top. Everybody else below them, once you expose them, they're sitting there in the audience going, hey, that is a good question. How are you going to answer that? Mm-hmm. Now, the answer is different when everybody in the company is interested in your own deck, like, hey, we're waiting for an answer. Now, if you had to answer it one-on-one in your office, 
and you're not being held accountable, then you're never going to get the answer that should be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the hallmarks for you in that way that, that allows you, it seems like, because I, I watch you on LinkedIn, man, and, and you have a good following, I think, because you, you appear to be an easygoing person and you speak to issues very naturally and and personally while you do. Like, I, I love the picture you had of all the black pilots that got shared tons of time. So it's yeah. not like you shy away from the issue. It's just you sort of you have a different perception of it and and you allow other perspectives to occur. Um, but how do you how do you do that? How would you advise people to understand other perspectives without being biased? That's a that's an interesting question. You know, I, I can honestly say up until the past seven or eight years ago, I definitely had to have a change in life because I was biased. Like, I think I was judgmental and I think it's human nature. Um, I give you an example real quick. I know two police officers and I jokingly tell them they're white. I'm like, if I pull over grandma at 11 o'clock at night, she's driving her Buick. I'm not calling for backup. She's probably lost. I'm just going to walk up on the car. Hey, man, it's late at night. You lost. If I pull over an old school Buick with four brothers that look like some of my cousins, <laughs> some of my friends I grew up with, I'm calling for backup, SWAT team. Everything. You know what I mean? Like, I, and that's just why am I doing that? It's because if I see a stray dog and it's a little chihuahua. I'm not afraid. Like, oh, here, little puppy, you lost. You know, give me some water. If I see a Rottweiler, uh, keep it moving. I'm gonna grab our girl. Hey, let's let's walk in and take shelter. Well, here's the I'm key, not here's the key the question: If it was four white dudes that maybe don't look like your cousin, would you would you still call for backup in the SWAT team? I would. Okay. Because I'm a police officer, and I look at it as these four white dudes could be just as bad, if not worse, than these four black dudes. But I'm not taking a chance. Right. Now, when I walk up on the Chihuahua, my fear of a big Rottweiler biting my hand off may not be as bad as this little Chihuahua ha- might have rabies. Right. I don't know now, but a month from now, I might be slobbering at the mouth. So, again, it's experience and perspective. And I think if you are telling human beings to forget all of their experience yeah. in the past, that's wrong because that's how we that's how we live. That's how we progress. Should you tell them to relearn it? I wouldn't say relearn it. Okay. I would say focus and uh, and understand. Don't agree or disagree, but understand why your bias is of such. Because your bias is what defines you. Yeah. And you don't you don't want to change all of that. It's just why do I think a, an older white lady driving at eleven o'clock at night might be lost or harmless compared to there might be four black guys, four yeah. white guys, four yeah. Latino guys. It's just, you know what I mean? I, I drive a Range Rover. I get more people that look at me when I step out, not as here's some young black dude. It's just, oh, he might be important because of that car. Right. I don't have the windows down. I'm not blaring rap music. That might be offensive to people. But I get other folks how they might perceive it. I don't agree or disagree. The most important thing, like I tell our daughters, is just understand that if I did drive around in this truck with the windows down, with the music blaring and it's that vulgar rap that probably offends people with cuss words and everything. Just understand that they might look at that in a negative way. Yeah. Yeah. And is that like, okay, so that's true. I agree with you. If you, you know, whatever it is, people wear suits to interviews for a reason, you know? Yes. And if you, you, you always kind of think like you don't have the right to necessarily, like you said, change the whole way the world works per se. Um, but I think that's true and okay up to a point. Um, 
and I'll I'll reference one thing and then ask you a question. Like I remember I saw this interview on YouTube. It was an old interview. I think it was like Donahue or Oprah Winfrey, one of those two. And it yeah. was this this um, old or maybe middle aged white lady, and there was a guy on stage in a suit, black dude who had locks or dreads. I don't know which which one. I always get confused. But um, she said, if I saw you somewhere walking down the street, I would be scared and intimidated. And this dude had a PhD and everything. Um, yeah. So that's true. And you don't ask people to forget things. But my question for you is, is it right that she carry that opinion? And 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 should we say, you know, there is a way in which you should start to try to adjust a change or adjust your perspectives? Because it's not necessarily is it wrong for people to have these wrong perspectives and carry them out to a way that they influence other people? Well, real quick, I'll say the old me would have understood why somebody would say, Hey, she's kind of right, or that's wrong, because it's perception. If you're black, you would look at it and be proud of that brother that is dressed like that. That's his appearance. He has a PhD. We would all agree that is rare, probably. It's not the norm. But based off of a black person's perspective, they would look at it and say, that white lady is wrong. There's other white people that would go, hey, I'm not black. And all the other people that I've seen that look like him, it's always been a negative experience. So that's why... I would be afraid. Yeah. I wouldn't say that's right or wrong. I would say that's your experience. You mm. can't control somebody's experience like that. But that's where I said when we first started about there's too many labels nowadays because that's what happens. You know, if the majority of people that look like him, it's a negative experience, then how can you really say somebody's right or wrong for being afraid? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's I don't a think, reason why I don't people, think it's right or wrong, but maybe the issue is you shouldn't carry that into multiple decisions that affect other people's lives in a harmful way. Namely, like that shouldn't affect that cat getting hired. It shouldn't affect his ability to get a house. It shouldn't affect his promotion capabilities and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it shouldn't. But that's what my second thought is nowadays, probably the last 10 years. And unfortunately, but fortunately, it happened once we had kids. I stopped having that bias and I started forcing myself to look at that person for what they are yeah. instead of having a pre-bias and saying, hey, it's wrong because this guy has dreads. Right. Oh, he has a Ph.D. Well, OK, that, that's all right because he has a Ph.D. It's OK to look like that. But I understand why people think like that. Yeah. I, I understand why other minorities see me in my uniform walking to a wide body jet, getting ready to take off and fly. And there's older black people that are proud because yeah. they didn't see it that much. They didn't have the opportunity. Nowadays, a lot of kids will see me and blow it off and go, ah, black pilot, whatever, because there is the opportunity. Now, I'm not saying right or wrong how frequent the opportunities right, are, right. but they are out there. And I think moving forward, that generational gap, it has to be addressed. But I think it comes down to perspectives and you can't argue somebody's opinion is right or wrong. I uh, think more or less you, you need to accept it and understand why they why they have that opinion and how they got it. No, that makes sense. And I think the generation gap, because I, I hadn't even thought about this coming into this discussion, man. But the generation gap is a problem in that there isn't a language to talk to a new generation who was maybe born with a black president. Like, True. Like there's not a language to say like they I, I, I imagine it'd be hard to reconcile some issues of discrimination with the achievement of other minorities. And I know people say like you can't use the anomaly like this, the special like you can't use Phil Dillingham's to define every single 
black person's experience because not everyone had your up, back up, grant, upbringing. They didn't have a cousin at yes. the academy, all that stuff. At the same time, a kid who sees that won't have a grid for understanding a discussion that has that's rooted in 1960s, 50s um, politics. I think that's what is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and, and I can't expect to deliver the same message to parents that grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s that are now grandparents that gave their kids a different speech yeah. when you had to fight for an opportunity, whoever had to fight for an opportunity, they're completely ingrained for the rest of their life. They're going to handle things in my opinion, a lot different than the next generation that yeah. they could have influenced because they're constantly fighting for opportunity. Well, now you don't have to fight and opportunity is there. Like I told some folks the other day, what's the excuse now for not understanding, not, not capitalizing on an opportunity, but understanding it and looking at it. Well, I think so. This is one where we'll probably learn this together. But I deal with some folks who um, and, and, I, and you may have had this experience to a certain degree, but there are environments in which it's it's there aren't the same opportunity levels for everybody. Um, True. And and I think the the racial disparities between those, the ethnic disparities between those still does need to be addressed. The question is how, and I think you're doing it in a way that's healthy because you show up as an example, you show them how to have perspectives without judging and being biased. You do a good job of, of saying, Hey, have discipline. And what's the second word? I already forgot. I forgot your speech word. Well, discipline. listening and discipline. Listening and, so to show them how to have listening and discipline and to just show up with the expectation that they're going to succeed. They don't have to fight for their right when they got it. Just do it by executing i think all those men are awesome are awesome ways to help have a 21st version 21st century version of that message i wonder for you personally as you reflect on yourself phil what are some characteristics about you that helped you to succeed in the ways that you have whether it's as a pilot or as a business person or as an effective networker and now a person who, who speaks motivationally to to groups of all sizes you know i i humor makes me the comedian I am, which I failed at being a comedian. But, you know, I look at things like I just I just alluded to a little while ago. You know, I, I sometimes think success is everything, but I think I'm too dumb to fail. Yeah. Like fail, failing is an option, in my opinion. Right. Like real quick, I, I get this analogy. I get this, this situation where I draw up on a board when I speak to kids. I put a circle up on the board and I put Sacramento. I draw well, I don't even draw a line, but I put a uh, an X down at the bottom and put L.A. Yeah. And I go, everybody here sees that Sacramento is semi-north of L.A., right? How do you get there? So I give a pen to somebody in the room, volunteer, say, hey, go ahead, show me how you get there. You know how many kids get up there and they stare at the board and they draw a squiggly line left, right, and try and say, we take this highway. And at the end of 20 minutes, I take another red pen. I just draw a straight line, straight down. Zoop. Right. And then they start laughing and I go, but it's that simple. But here's the deal. I go, what happens if I told you that you couldn't turn left? You could only make right hand turns. And it floors people. I go, just get on the freeway in Sacramento, drive 387 miles to L.A. And the only way you can get off the freeway is to turn right. If you turn left, you go hit the, the center divide. And when you get off the freeway, there's going to be somebody waiting there with an opportunity. Right. People, people stare at me and I go, if you give somebody the option to fail, there's always a 1% chance at minimum that they can fail. What happens if you take that option away? Hmm. What happens if you teach somebody 
that failure doesn't even exist if you take it away. Yeah. And there's a lot of people, if you start to understand certain perspectives, uh, some people in their upbringing, if their dad was a pilot, their granddad was a pilot and their great granddad was a pilot. That's all they've known to be was a pilot. Right. Failing and quitting was never, ever an option. It didn't even exist. Yeah. That's the perception that I think we need to focus on. And that's what I have now where I sometimes think I used to think maybe I'm too dumb to fail. I didn't even know I could fail. I didn't even know I could opt out and say, oh, I don't want to do this. I just went in and had to take the test because that was part of the process. Mm. And part of the process was going to make me a pilot. And the other part is I'm a, I think I'm afraid to fail. That scares me. I'm not afraid of the two things that I'm ever afraid of in life now is being a bad dad and failing. Hmm. Those are the two things that drive me. If you had to ask me, what does it for me? What characteristics get me to those two things right there? The kids, the family, I don't want to be a bad dad. Yeah, I may not. I may not coach the soccer game the best or teach you how to do that, but at least I'm there. You'll never take that away. Right. I just smile and go, hey, daddy's here. You know, I, I didn't let you watch Nickelodeon or whatever, but I'm here. <laughs> but the other part is I'm afraid to fail like that. Scare, that scares me more than death itself. I'm afraid that I had to get up the next day and go, man, I, I failed. How do you if if you were too dumb to know that failing was an option, how are you defining failure now? I would say failure is not trying. Mm. It's not the end result. Like, I don't care if you got an F. But you didn't even try and take the test. You didn't even show up. I'm the dude that's going to stand up all six foot four of me with my arms crossed and smile at you sarcastically and go, you didn't even show up and take the test, right? right. You you knew you were going to flunk, so you didn't even show up. That's a whole different issue than showing up and flunking, knowing that you didn't study and were going to flunk. That's a whole separate issue. Right. But you didn't even show up and fail. That's what I have a problem with. Hmm. How about, so coming along that path, who are some important mentors you've had in your life and in your career to help you shape the path you've been on and, and to develop this whole mentality? Mom and dad just always putting that in me. You know, this is what are you going to do? Uh, I want to do this over here. First off, you got to have something to do. Yeah, I know. Well, you're going to do that over there. Okay, let's figure it out. And uh, here's the plan. Here's the backup plan. Go. And then my brother setting the standard. He's two years older. Once he went to a merchant Marine Academy, I was like, great. Thanks for raising the bar. Right. Um, but we kind of one up each other, you know, one moment he'll do something and call me and congratulate me. I mean, I'll, I'll congratulate him. And then literally I kind of feel like, well, now it's my turn and then I got to go do something. Right. So we just keep going back and forth, but he's in my network. And again, there's that word again, it's the network. Are there any other, so your mom and dad and your brother, anybody else stand as a mentor in your life? Yeah. You know, I would, uh, I would say there's personal mentors, uh, some guys and gals that I know that uh, have just been big, uh, have a heavy, heavy presence in my life from other pilots helping me fly. What's one name that stands and, out for you? Oh, wow. I, if I had to pick one, uh, definitely my cousin who um, was busy at the time, but always there for me, Charles Stallworth. The one that play, uh, flew fighters? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then after that, wow, you know, there's there's just so many people. I, I don't even know if I could name one name. It sounds uh, like I, I you met a, have like a cloud of mentors out there. Man, it's just a huge network. I can honestly say a guy that uh, I never had a chance to think, but I had an encounter with him was a Tuskegee Airman. And his name was Lee Charles. And I think he's known as the only 
ace, uh, black ace that ever lived. And he was a Tuskegee Airman. Yeah. And at the time, I ran into him sitting at a bar. I was just sitting in Branson, Missouri, on my own, drinking, watching the game at the bar. And this, this guy, gentleman, walks up. He goes, mind if I join you? And I was like, you know, I'd rather get drunk on my own. A little weird, but older guy. Like, okay. He sits down and starts talking to me and asking me what I do. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a, you know, a pilot for the military. And he goes, that's interesting. I used to fly too. Right. And we start talking. And he goes, well, what do you fly? And I go, I fly C-130s. He goes, really? So you can't shoot back? Uh, and I'm like, well, no, that's not the rule. The rules of the game don't work like that, but no. So for the next 20 minutes, he keeps saying that, like, that's just phenomenal that you can't shoot back. I go, well, what'd you fly? He goes, oh, way before your time, man. He goes, tell you what, have you ever seen the movie, the Tuskegee Airmen that was produced by uh, Steven Spielberg? And I went, I have. He goes, just real quick. What's your favorite part of the story? The movie. I said, there's a scene where they, Two airplanes take off and they go out on a training mission. One of them has engine problems. So he goes, I can't make it back to base. And he lands on this levee. When the backdrop, there's about eight or nine sheriff's officers on horseback with shotguns. And they're escorting and watching all of these black prisoners dig ditches. These two P-51 Mustangs, and keep in mind, 40, 50, 60 years ago, they land on a levee. These two fighter pilots get out, leathered up, all you can see are their eyes, and the horseback, the sheriffs on horseback ride up to them, put their shotguns down, and they're like, those are beautiful airplanes. Hey, you guys need help? And the guy takes his mask off and his helmet, and the sheriff's officers are shocked that they're black, and they're like, oh my goodness. The two black guys think it's normal, because that's their environment, their perception. They're like, nah, we're good. Tighten up some bolts, and we'll be out here in a minute. All of the black prisoners are floored like oh my goodness those guys fixed the airplane and take off this guy sitting next to me goes out of that whole tuskegee airman movie and what they did and all of that that's all that you that's your best part right i said yeah just that dynamic was funny so he nudges me and takes a sip of beer and looks at me and goes what else was i supposed to do (laughs) and i go you're kidding me that was you right And he goes, yeah. So I get his name and I go home that night, Google it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And that's where I had one of those life changing experiences of he was looking at me like you fly an airplane where you can't shoot back. That's crazy. But I'm looking at him like you're the only black ace that's ever lived. And then when I did more research, he only got credited with four and a half kills because he did not want to be known or highlighted other than the Tuskegee Airmen. How phenomenal is that? He didn't he didn't want that. He was like, hey, I'm a Tuskegee Airman. He was that guy, right? And I figured that out. I never got a chance to interact, meet him again. He's since passed. But encounters like that, I internalized and it pushed me. When I meet a kid, when they shake hands with me tonight, and I tell him, here's my business card. If it goes unused, that's the worst thing you can do. Hmm. Even if you call me and say, hey, I, I don't want to be a pilot. Well, what do you want to be? I want to be an engineer. Well, guess what? My brother's an engineer. You should talk to him. That's where the network goes. And if I could teach kids anything, that's what it would be. Grow your network. The network's the most important thing you will ever be a part of. You're doing an amazing job of that, man. I can really tell. And um, the, I think the last 
thing I wanted to ask you is what what are three books? Now you said you only read one so far. So if you if yeah. you have more like that's tell me the name of that book again. If you have any others that you'd recommend, uh let me know what they are. You know, I read uh the book that that changed everything was Love is Letting Go of Fear. Okay. Um and I don't love too many things outside the family, so I had to switch that word love with like. Uh, and just understand that you have a fear of anything you don't know. You fear it. So get to know it before you just hate it. You might learn that you love it or like it. Any other books you'd recommend? Uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can't. I read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Mm-hmm. And I think that was more of an interesting read. It was way too long for, for me. Um, but I understood the philosophy of mentally understanding your environment. And more so not how you perceive it, but if you're fighting against an enemy or if you're you're interacting with somebody else, their opinion and how they formulated that opinion is more important than anything you'll ever know. Yeah. That's what I got out of that book. And it was backed up with Love is Letting Go with Fear. What do you do? Those two books did it for me. Oh, that's good. Those are two good ones, man. Um, what do you do for fun? You know, I, man, interact with the kids. Anything that goes on with our daughters, I'm there. I just started developing the habit of uh, trying to build muscle cars. I'm really, really getting into muscle cars now. Started with the Corvette, huh? I still got it and uh, just had a little accident with it with the motor. We rebuilt it. It's getting new interior. Uh, I will always have that car, man. That was my claim to fame at the Academy. Uh, I've since acquired a 68 Camaro drop top. Wow. And we're restoring that. And I'm about to go in half with my parents on a, uh, hopefully a 64 and a half Mustang. Hmm. And then after that, our oldest daughter, who's 11, she wants a uh, Corvette Stingray, a 69 Stingray. Wow. So I have a uh, long distance business associate that is interested in uh, building cars and flipping them for a small profit. But the uh, the profit in my book is I get to play with them and drive them. Yeah. And I'm going to roll all of the profits right back into buying and flipping cars. So Where can people find you online if they want to, Phil? Uh, my website, www.networkventuregroup.com. And it has the layout of uh, my business group, which is called the Dillingham Group. And all of our contact info, latest stuff. There's a blog on there and what we're doing. Awesome, man. Well, Phil, great conversation as always, man. It's a great conversation having with you. And I hope you've uh, enjoyed it as well. I did, man. I was looking forward to this. I'm glad we got this in. Well, my guest today has been Phil Dillingham. Phil, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you, man.